Marta Argerich there in that 1968 recording of the first movement of Liszt's Piano Concerto No. 1 with Claudio Abado conducting the London Symphony Orchestra. A very warm welcome to the special On and Off the Record podcast, the first of two programs dedicated to legendary pianist Marta Argerich. 
My name is Adrian Fuchs, host of On and Off the Record, and I'd like to invite you to join me for the next two hours as we trace Argerich's early years as a wunderkind in Buenos Aires, her formative studies with Friedrich Gulda, her triumphs at the Busoni and Geneva International Piano Competitions in 1957, and her rise to international prominence when she won the 7th International Chopin Piano Competition in Warsaw in 1965 at age 24. Thomas May once wrote that an encounter with the searing artistry of Marta Argerich can resemble a religious conversion experience. Alex Ross, writing in The New Yorker, likened the experience to what can only be described as a possession, a visitation. Indeed, Argerich, who turned 75 on June 5th of this year, has been called the High Priestess of the Piano, a goddess who inspires a cult-like devotion among audiences, her fellow musicians and artists. Argerich reigns supreme over the feudalistic world of virtuoso pianists, notes Ross, Rivals become mere fans around her, lingering at the door of her dressing room and then skulking away. Her concerts conjure up scenes from another place and time. Grown men running down the aisles, clutching bouquets, world-renowned musicians pummeling the railings of the upper boxes, and jaded critics breaking into foolish smiles. Having admired the artistry of this phenomenal pianist for as long as I can remember, I've wanted to compile a program on her for On and Off the Record for some time now. From the outset, however, I realized that trying to capture even just some of the facets of Argerich's artistry would prove a challenging task, not least because of her mercurial and enigmatic artistic persona. Daniel Barenboim, for example, likened her to a beautiful painting without a frame. She is also famously shy and elusive, seldom gives interviews, and has even been called the Garbo of pianists. As a result, there is not a great deal of audiovisual interview clips available of her in English that I could draw on for this program. What I found and would make sense to include, I did, but I do urge you to seek out the fascinating documentaries Evening Talks by George Gachot and Bloody Daughter by her daughter Stephanie Argerich, which contain insightful interview clips, mostly in French, as well as wonderful archival footage of Argerich in performance. A search on YouTube will also yield a treasure trove of riches. What I did manage to include in these two programs, however, are numerous quotes by Argerich herself drawn from the relatively few in-depth press interviews that she has given over the years, as well as comments from family members, friends, critics and fellow artists. I do hope that the end result will provide you with a greater understanding of this unique artist, or at the least a newfound appreciation of her formidable artistry. As always, I would love to hear any feedback or comments that you may have regarding these programs. To get in touch with me, please visit my website www.onandofftherecord.com and look for the contact page, where you'll find the necessary information on how to reach me. You can also send me an email at adrian, that's a d r i a n at onandofftherecord.com or send me a message on the On and Off the Record Facebook page or on Twitter at onoffthericord. A reminder too that you can listen again or download a copy of this podcast or any of my previous programs 
from my website or from iTunes for free. And if you enjoyed listening, please let me know by writing a review on iTunes. I look forward to hearing from you. So, where does one begin to describe Marta Argerich, one of the most enigmatic figures in classical music today, a living legend who is regarded as one of the greatest pianists of all time, yet someone who readily admits that it is not a gift she sought, nor one she is particularly comfortable with. I didn't want to be a pianist in the first place, she once famously stated. I still don't want to be, but it is the only thing that I can do, more or less. Despite her legendary reputation, Argerich has paradoxically played only one solo recital in decades, instead preferring to play concertos or chamber music with musicians whose company she enjoys. A further contradiction is that her playing, whether it be Bach, Beethoven, Chopin, Prokofiev, Strauss or Messiaen, feels entirely personal, yet it is always completely in the service of the composer. She seems both to own the music completely and to discover it on the spot, Matthew Gurevich noted. Her interpretations are never standard or middle of the road, yet while one listens, there seems to be just one way, hers. The bottom line is that, as Anthony Tomasini wrote in the New York Times, once you've heard Agrich play, you never forget it. She is a colossal technician, a powerfully intuitive musician, and an electrifying performer. Here is Argerich playing the preludes numbers 16 through 24 from her recording of the complete set of Chopin preludes, Opus 28, recorded in 
Marta Argerich was born on June 5, 1941, in Buenos Aires, Argentina, to Juanita and Juan Manuel Argerich, both of whom worked as economists in the Argentine diplomatic service. Her paternal ancestors were Catalonians based in Buenos Aires since the 18th century, while her maternal grandparents were Jewish immigrants from Russia. Argerich became a pianist quite by accident, as she explained in an interview with Dean Elder for Clavier magazine in 1978. As a precocious child, my parents enrolled me in kindergarten when I was two years and eight months old, she noted. I had a little friend who was always teasing me. He was five and was always telling me, you can't do this and you can't do that. And I would always do whatever he said I couldn't. One day he got the idea of telling me that I couldn't play the piano. That's how it all started. I still remember it. I immediately got up, went to the piano, and started playing the tune that the teacher was playing all the time. I played the tune by ear, perfectly. The teacher called my mother, and they started making a fuss, Argerich recalled. Soon after, Argerich's parents enlisted the tutelage of Ernestina Kusrov, famous for teaching children to play by ear, to help develop their daughter's musical talents. When little Martita as she is still called by avid fans in her homeland, reached age five, Argerich's parents engaged internationally renowned teacher Vincenzo Scaramuzza to advance his studies. Scaramuzza was known as a fearsome taskmaster, capable of changing all of a student's fingerings minutes before a performance. He was very tough, Argerich recalled in a 2005 interview with Caleb Bach. I was very shy and he intimidated me. Elsewhere, she has described him as a tyrant with sadistic tendencies. One particular musical experience was to have a lasting impact on Argerich. Aged six, she attended a concert with her mother in which Claudio Arrau played Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 4. The trills in the second movement gave her goosebumps. I was dozing off and suddenly, she says with a sharp intake of breath, experienced an electric shock. To this day, Argerich has performed all of the Beethoven piano concertos except for number four, because as she says, I'm afraid of what would happen, it's so important to me. In 1949, Argerich made her professional debut with a local orchestra at the Teatro Colón in Buenos Aires, performing Mozart's piano concerto number 20 in D minor, Kirchel 466, Beethoven's Piano Concerto No. 1 in C Major, Opus 15, and the Bach G Major French Suite in between. She recalls, Before the concert I went to the bathroom, knelt down, and told myself that if I missed a single note, I would explode. I don't know why I believed that, but I didn't miss a single note. Much later, in 1992, Argerich admitted that she always hated playing in public. Even as a child, I could not stand being on stage, she noted. I had to be pushed onto the platform, and I just ran to the piano, played, and ran off as fast as I could. I never got over this intense dislike of being on a stage. As a small child, it was the immense space around me which made me feel so alone. In her famous 1978 interview with Dean Elder, Argerich stated, Isn't it funny? All the Wunderkinder play the Mozart D minor concerto, and it is one of the most difficult in certain respects. But I heard a tape the other day of a concert of mine 
of the Schumann Concerto when I was 11 and of the Mozart Concerto when I was 9. It's a very distorted tape, but I was touched because, my God, pianistically it is absolutely amazing. I mean, I don't understand how I did those things. Well, we certainly don't understand how Argerich did, and still does, what she does as only she can. Here she is at age 9, performing the third movement from Mozart's Piano Concerto No. 20 in D minor, Kirchel 466, with Alberto Castellanos conducting the orchestra of the Argentine National Radio in this live 1950 recording.
Buenos Aires was incredibly active musically at that time, Argerich recalled in an interview with Kayla Bach. We had important musicians from Europe there all the time. Daniel Barenboim's father, Enrique, also studied with Scaramuzza and then went on to teach his own son. I've known Danielito since we were kids. We used to play chamber music together every Thursday at the home of Ernesto Rosenthal, an amateur violinist who would invite touring musicians from Europe to participate. When I was eight, I played for the great German pianist Walter Gieseking, who sensed I didn't really like to perform and advised my parents to leave me in peace. But they kept pushing me, even though I didn't want to practice. It was around this time that Agerich met the famed Austrian pianist, composer and teacher Friedrich Gulda, known for his love of both classical and jazz music. I was delighted, noted Agerich of her experience hearing Gulda for the first time. He could do anything. His playing was impeccable and always slightly radical. For instance, he didn't slow down in the second lyrical theme of a classical sonata, unlike a lot of other pianists. He maintained the same tempo, but the expression was very different. What fascinated me was that he had a very modern style in a very classical repertoire. Argerich played for Gulda, who told her mother that he didn't teach and that he didn't like prodigies. Nevertheless, he agreed to take Argerich as a student. Soon thereafter, the 12-year-old Argerich received an appointment to the presidential residence, the famed Casa Rosada or Pink Palace in Buenos Aires, where an infamous encounter ensued between her and the then president of Argentina, Juan Perón. As Argerich describes it, I went with Mama to the Casa Rosada. Perón said, And where do you want to go, Natita? In certain regions of Argentina, Natita, meaning little nose, is an enduring term used for children. I told Perón I wanted to go to Vienna to study with Gulda. To ingratiate herself, my mother said I would be willing to play a concert at the secondary school students' union, but Perón saw me make a face at this idea, so he said he would organize it while winking at me and under the table, gesturing with his fingers sideways to indicate that no such event would occur. He knew I didn't want to do it. He named my father as economic attaché in Vienna and also arranged another position for my mother at the Argentine embassy. Thus, as a family, we were able to move to the Austrian capital. Argerich spent nearly 18 months studying privately with Gulda, whose personality and guidance proved formative. I believe he is one of the most talented people I have ever met, Argerich told Dean Elder in 1978. For me, playing for him was a fantastic experience. He used to record my lessons, and afterwards he wanted me to listen with him to criticize my own playing. This was very interesting because it was very democratic. He liked to know what I had to say, what I thought. It was not just this usual thing that happens between a pupil and a teacher. It was fantastic, and I learned a lot from him. Schumann in particular is one composer with whom Argerich has a natural affinity, and his piano concerto in A minor, opus 54, which she has been performing since she was 11 years old, has become one of her signature pieces. Indeed, there is something about Schumann's music that speaks to Argerich, or rather she is able to speak through his music in such a way that the music seems to be a natural extension of her being, part of her DNA. 
Friedrich Gulda once told her, It's not your fault that Schumann was not Argentinian. Here is conductor Antonio Papano talking about Argerich's artistry and her playing of the Schumann Concerto. It's impossible to separate uh, the person from the musician. She is music. First of all, what a dynamo. She manages, with all the energy and mercuriality that she has in her playing, to somehow get every nuance on the way. You know, it's very few pianists can really do that. You can't put her in a cage. You can't uh, uh, put her in a box. You know, it's, it's, um, she's a free spirit. She has such class, such a, uh, sort of old world elegance. It's from another era almost, you know. Just wonderful. don't have to know anything about music to be absolutely affected and infected by the spirit of her music making. You know, you're just knocked over by the amount of energy that she has. But actually, what she does is always extremely natural. It's as if, it's as if the music can't go any other way. I prefer not to fool with Schumann, Argerich has stated in an interview. I hope I'm not bad for him. Schumann is very intimate for me, and I hope he likes me. I'm extremely touched by his suffering, and I love his generosity, even with his colleagues. He had so much love to give. Let's listen now to the first movement, Allegro Affettuoso, from the Piano Concerto in A minor, Opus 54, by Robert Schumann, as performed by Marta Argerich. Nikolaus Harnunkur leads the Chamber Orchestra of Europe in this acclaimed live recording from 1992.
Gulda was nevertheless a stern taskmaster, who pushed his young student hard. When he accused her of being lazy, she would prove him wrong, as she did when she reportedly mastered Schumann's Abegg variations and Ravel's Gaspard de la Nuit in just five days. I did not find it difficult, because I did not know what it was supposed to be, was her famous comment afterwards. To put this remarkable achievement into context, Ravel's Gaspard de la Nuit is regarded as one of the most demanding works in the piano literature, and Ravel is reported as admitting that he tried to make the third movement, Scarbeau, even more difficult than Balikirev's Islamé. Argerich has recorded Gaspard de la Nuit twice, the first of which was for Deutsche Grammophon in 1974, while she was seven months pregnant. Though that recording is still considered by many to be definitive, Argerich was not happy with the results. According to her, she played slower than what she had intended to as a result of being pregnant, and in her view, her playing sounds like that of a pregnant housewife, not suggestive at all and not the least bit demonic like you'd expect of this piece. Here is Scarbo from Ravel's Gaspar de la Nuit, taken from Argerich's famous 1974 recording.
In a 2004 interview with Le Monde de la Musique, Argerich recalled meeting Gulda several years later at the age of 40. He was furious with me, she noted. What did you do with your life, he asked me. He blamed me for not improvising any longer. According to him, I was not faithful to the ideals of our youth. This mixture of freedom and austerity fascinated me, noted Argerich. He said an artist shouldn't be a painter, but a photographer. For him, respect for the score was paramount. But when he improvised, he did what he wanted. He also had a rebellious side that I liked a lot, but he was highly principled. During her time in Europe, Argerich also seized opportunities for brief periods of coaching with Abby Simon and Madeleine Lipati, widow of the celebrated Romanian pianist Dinu Lipati. Madeleine Lipati try to rein in the tempestuous tendencies of her young student to little avail. Argerich did much better with her next teacher, Nikita Magalov, who reproached Lipati by saying, Madeline, you can't make a racehorse trot. It was Magalov who helped prepare the 16-year-old Argerich for the Busoni International Piano Competition in Bolzano, Italy and the Geneva International Music Competition held just two weeks apart in 1957. Much to her astonishment, Argerich carried off first prizes in both events. As Argerich told Dean Elder in 1978, the first time she played the Liszt Sixth Hungarian Rhapsody all the way through was during the actual performance at the Busoni competition. That's where I played the Liszt the first time, Argerich told Elder. I hadn't played it before, not even for myself. At that time, I was very superstitious, so I wouldn't play a piece all the way through, even for myself. I was afraid that something would happen, and so I just waited until I passed to the next round to learn the next set of pieces. I didn't expect to get through the preliminaries. I was expecting to be eliminated, and so I never worked from one round to the next. I didn't want to practice 
if I wasn't going to get through, so when my name was announced, I would go on and practice for the next round. I was always thinking, no. The sixth Hungarian Rhapsody by Franz Liszt is a well-known virtuoso showpiece that concludes with a brilliant cannonade of thundering octaves, an Argerich speciality.
And that recording of Marta Argerich playing Liszt's Sixth Hungarian Rhapsody in D-flat major was taken from her debut recital recording, which dates from 1960. Argerich's triumphs in Bolzano and Geneva immediately caught the attention of the international music community, and a slew of invitations to perform at prestigious venues across the globe streamed in. Argerich suddenly found herself heavily booked for several years of concert engagements. That caused some problems for me, she later noted. I wasn't prepared psychologically for the pressure of touring, nor was I prepared for the boredom of travelling, which left her feeling lonely and empty, as she would later recall. I wasn't enjoying it either as an artist or as a person. It was dismal. I was in quite a state. Argerich furthermore acknowledged a general dissatisfaction with her playing during this time, because I wasn't practicing, and at times I wasn't at all prepared, she noted. During two days in July of 1960, Argerich, who was only 19 years old at the time, made her debut recording for Deutsche Grammophon, playing solo pieces of Chopin, Brahms, Liszt, Ravel and Prokofiev. Critics greeted the recording with tremendous enthusiasm and praise. Argerich's playing of the Liszt Sixth Hungarian Rhapsody, the version we just heard, and Prokofiev's Toccata was even compared favorably with the classic Horowitz recordings of these works. Horowitz himself later heard the recording and expressed his genuine admiration. Here is Argerich's breathtaking recording of Prokofiev's Toccata taken from her 1960 debut recital recording.
There was no doubt that a major new talent had arrived on the international scene, and further recordings, not to mention an American debut, were eagerly awaited. But Argerich continued to derive little personal satisfaction from her success and curtailed her concert schedule. Seeking guidance, she approached the revered Italian pianist Arturo Benedetti Michelangeli, whom she had met during the Busoni competition, for lessons. However, she ended up having only four lessons with Michelangeli over the course of the next 18 months. He was around most of the time, but he wasn't interested in us pupils, she later recalled. Something special did not happen. Michelangeli himself later famously stated in an interview, I did a lot for that girl. When asked what he had done for Argerich, he half-jokingly replied, I taught her the music of silence. When Michelangeli did not provide the guidance that she was seeking, Argerich, then 20 years old, and trying to evade her mother's oppressive control, packed her bags and moved to New York City, essentially abandoning her musical career. Frustrated, depressed, and filled with self-doubt, she spent the next year or so watching late-night television, socializing with friends, and hardly touching the piano. I didn't do anything, she remembered. I felt I couldn't play anymore. Speaking several languages, she even contemplated the option of becoming a secretary. Through a brief entanglement with the young Taiwan-born violinist, composer and conductor Robert Chen, Argerich fell pregnant and even went through the rituals of a traditional wedding. Some friends say she did this out of curiosity, others that her mother forced her into it. She never set up house with her husband, however, and instead fled back to Geneva to give birth to a baby girl, Lida. What followed, noted Michael Church, was luridly dramatic, with Chen fighting and winning a court case for custody of the child, whom Argerich's mother at one point had even tried to abduct. Argerich's own lifestyle, meanwhile, had been judged too chaotic to provide the stability that their daughter needed. As a result, she was effectively barred from contact with her daughter until music brought them together again 17 years later. Lida would go on to become a well-known violinist. An aborted last-minute entry, arranged by her mother in the Queen Elizabeth of Belgium competition followed, an experience that Argerich confessed she was completely unprepared for. It then occurred to Argerich's mother to call on the Polish-born pianist Stefan Ashkenazi whom Argerich had played for in Argentina when she was a small child, for help. Over the next few months, Argerich took informal lessons with Ashkenazi, but it was in fact Ani Ashkenazi, his wife, whose presence helped to boost Argerich's confidence. As Argerich later confessed during her interview with Dean Alder in 1978, Ani Ashkenazi gave me strength and security. Because of her, I started to play again, and almost immediately I went to the Chopin competition. If it hadn't been for her, I would not be playing now. Argerich would later name her second daughter Annie Dutois in honor of Annie Ashkenazi. The major breakthrough in Argerich's career came in 1965 when she became the first woman and the first Western artist to win the prestigious International Chopin Piano Competition in Warsaw, Poland. Jury member Eugene List, a gifted pianist in his own right, described her performance as volcanic and one of nature's happenings. 
A few months later, when Argerich returned to Warsaw, the Polish sang Stolat to her, a traditional Polish song that is sung to express good wishes, good health, and a long life, a gesture previously only shown to Artur Rubinstein. She was 24 years old. Next, I'd like to play you an interview conducted by the BBC in which Marta Argerich talks about Chopin's Piano Concerto No. 1 in E minor, Opus 11, followed by a recording of the first movement, the Allegro Maestoso, as performed by Argerich on March 13, 1965, during the final round of the Chopin Piano Competition in Warsaw. Witold Drewicki conducts the Warsaw National Philharmonic Symphony Orchestra. Well, Marta Argerich is famous for not giving interviews, but she was kind enough to talk to me briefly earlier on about this first Chopin concerto. I have to tell you, she said, that when I don't play Chopin for a while, I don't feel like a pianist. He was a genius, Aaron, so what can I say? He's the pianist, the musician, the pianist, whom I would have loved the most to be able to hear playing. I'm so curious about his playing, much more than anybody else, much more than Liszt and much more than anybody else, you know? I'm so curious. I would love to see how he played, really, because of his compositions, the way he writes for the piano, which is totally different than anybody else. You know, and the way he makes the piano sound, and the way he writes for the piano, it's totally different. The virtuosity, and of course, which must not be obvious, because the musical quality is extraordinary in Chopin. So the virtuosity, which is tremendous, because it's terribly difficult, but it's there, but it has to be like an understatement. It doesn't have to show, I mean, it's not a show-off uh, thing, you know. It's called the Concerto Brillante, yes, brilliant. Well, but I think this is not, um, yeah. I mean, to talk about music is very difficult. What music does to one, you know. The first movement of this concerto, for me, is extremely passionate and it's extremely proud and it's, it has something uh, and the tender, I mean, it has the whole Chopin there, for me, the first movement. The second movement of this concerto, I find it much more, more lyrical, not so, a little bit more restrained singing, bel canto, really, and, but not so... I love the coda, though. No, it's terribly difficult. It's a dance, no? But, well, it's extremely difficult. Pianistically, something incredibly difficult. You are never sure about it. It's very brilliant, of course. But it's very rewarding, also. You know, very often I thought that I like to listen to hear the Chopin concert by young pianist. I think he was 20 when he did this one. Before, I used to think like that. No, I'm in a sort of critical situation about that. Want to compare it with what, for instance, of his other pieces? Okay, the preludes and the Florence Fantasy. There's already this element of, like, you know, a very beautiful poisoned flower. Sometimes there is already a little bit of it. Not as much as it has been in other... Yeah. But there is. I wouldn't say that in the second movement of this concerto, and in the third, but in the first, it might. Something, sometimes. 
for me, the first moment is the most emotionally charged, for me.
In January 1966, Argerich made her U.S. recital debut at Philharmonic, now David Geffen Hall, in New York as part of Lincoln Center's Great Performers series. In early 1968, she was scheduled to play Beethoven's first piano concerto for her U.S. orchestral debut with the New York Philharmonic, conducted by Leonard Bernstein, but withdrew three days prior to the performance. It was terrible I did this, she noted in an interview. It was not for health reasons, it was because of some other problems I had. So Bernstein played the concerto himself. The manager at the time was very funny. He said, Lenny played, he had a great success, and so he loves you. When Argerich finally made her U.S. orchestral debut, it was in 1970 playing Prokofiev's Piano Concerto No. 3 with the New York Philharmonic Orchestra conducted by Claudio Abado, a close friend and regular partner on stage, with whom she would go on to have an artistic partnership stretching some 40 years. One of the many infamous stories surrounding Marta Argerich is how she learned the Prokofiev Third Piano Concerto, a work which, along with the Tchaikovsky First Piano Concerto, has become her calling card. The story goes that, age 16, she shared a room with another female pianist. Argerich, who was always a night owl, slept during the day while her roommate practiced the Prokofiev Concerto and somehow she learned the concerto in her sleep, through osmosis. Yep, you heard that right, she learnt it in her sleep. In a subliminal manner, I more or less memorized it, Argerich noted in an interview. When I had to perform it, I even made the same mistakes as my roommate did. I picked them up too. I learnt them in my sleep, just as one would learn a new language by listening to the tape under one's pillow. Well, that brings us to the end of this On and Off the Record podcast the first of two programs dedicated to Marta Argerich. I hope that you will join me again for the second part of our two-part tribute, in which we touch on Argerich's relationships with conductor Charles Dutois and pianist Stephen Kovacevic, discuss her phenomenal technique, and trace the stage fright, insecurities and fears that have plagued her throughout her career. We will also touch on her battle with cancer and her legendary concert in Carnegie Hall in 2000. As always, I'd like to encourage you to visit my website on and off the record, www.onandofftherecord.com, where you'll find more information on this and other programs, and where you can listen again or download my programs for future listening. You can also find my podcasts on iTunes. Simply search for On and Off the Record. And while you're at it, Subscribe to my iTunes podcast feed to receive any new on and off the record podcasts as soon as they are released. If you'd like to get in touch and share with me any feedback you may have on this or other programs, you can do so by sending me an email at adrian, that's A-D-R-I-A-N, at onandofftherecord.com, via the Facebook on and off the record page, or via Twitter. My Twitter handle is at on off the record. To play us out, here is the third movement, the Allegro Manon Troppo, from Prokofiev's Piano Concerto No. 3 in C Major, Opus 26, as recorded by Marta Argerich in 1967, with Claudio Abado conducting the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. Of this legendary recording, Gramophone magazine noted, There have been others to match the bustle and brilliance of Argerich's Prokofiev, her coloristic range, her drive, her flashiness, her straining at the leash. 
but I'm not sure I could name anyone who has so satisfyingly combined all those qualities, who has given us such a rocket-launched recapitulation in the first movement, such circus routine vividness in the following variations, or such monstrous hyperbolic fairy tale imagery in the finale, and all done with the most engaging, reckless abandon. From me, Adrian Fuchs, till next time, happy listening. Of course, Prokofiev is my best friend, I could say. I mean, he has never let me down. It makes me happy. <laughs>